All right. Go ahead and make your way to your seats. I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 8. We are continuing on in the book of 1 Corinthians this morning. Uh, if you don't know me, my name is Jay, and I'm on staff here at the church. If you're a guest, we're so glad that you would join us this morning. Um, I would love to meet you after the service, and so if I haven't had the chance to meet you yet, come by after and say hi. I'd love to get to know you a little bit. Um, okay, so like I mentioned, we'll be in 1 Corinthians 8. Uh, we, we just had a mini four-part series on marriage, sexuality, and singleness from the book of 1 Corinthians. So if you missed that, I encourage you to go back and check that out from the last four weeks. Uh, but there's a little bit of a shift this morning, and so uh, that's where we'll be. Uh, it'll be here on the screens for you as well if you don't have your Bibles. I'll start reading in verse 1. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all, all, all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed." the brother for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brothers and sisters and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it has relevance thousands of years after it was written. And so we just ask that you meet us here this morning, that you would illuminate these words today and show us what you would have for us this morning. Would you change our hearts and make us look more like Jesus? And it's in his name we pray. Amen. So I want to acknowledge right from the jump here um, that this may not be something you wrestle with. It is not something you wrestle with. Like walking by a pagan temple, seeing food offered to an idol and think, I want to go eat that meat, right? This is not something that you struggle with. Now, what I don't want us to do is say, this has no relevance for me. I'm out. I can check out. I'm going to leave early, whatever. I think you'll actually be surprised at what is there for us this morning. Now, to be clear, if you have the opportunity to eat food that's been offered to an idol in a pagan temple, I am not recommending you do that, okay? But hang in there this morning. That is not, in my opinion, the point of this text. So what is the point? 
I'm so glad you asked. So he begins in chapter 8, verse 1, by saying, now concerning, very similar to how he started chapter 7, when he says, now concerning the matters about which you wrote. He said it again in in chapter 7, verse 25, now concerning the betrothed. He'll do it again in chapter 12 and in chapter 16. What is he doing? He's, He's simply responding to a letter that the church in Corinth had written to him. And so these chapters are the beginning of his response to their questions and their arguments that they have built out. So the question here in chapter 8 is surrounding the idea of meat that's been offered to idols. Now on the surface, this church builds a pretty good argument. Okay, so let's look at that together. In verse 1, they say, uh, Paul says, now concerning food offered to idols, we know that you likely have quotations in your English text. We've got them here. All of us possess knowledge. In verse 4, uh, more quotations. An idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. And so these quotations here were added in, your, in our English translations. They are not in the original language. However, it's the interpreter's best, um, it's their best guess to attribute the words that were in that original letter to this church in Corinth. So I, th- I think they got it right. And Paul is quoting them saying, hey, I know that you said this, and he's attributing it to them. So what are they saying? They are saying, hey, Paul, there is only one God, right? There there is only one God. All of us possess this knowledge. Idols don't really exist. Like we see that temple, we see that physical statue, and we acknowledge that these things are not real. And And then what does Paul do? He doesn't refute that. He actually agrees with them. He then says, we know. So he is lumping himself with them. We know that there's only one God. We know that idols don't really exist. We know that we possess this knowledge. He says further in verse 5 and 6, there may be many so-called gods and lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father. There is one Lord, Jesus Christ. So what's the problem? If this is permissible, if Paul affirms their reasoning this should be a non-starter. They should be able to eat and drink and do this freely because they know that these idols don't exist. Well, it's not that cut and dry. At the end of verse one, let's go back to verse one. Paul says, this knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Now, these verses can be very confusing. I, I, I can track with the end of verse 1. This knowledge puffs up. Like, you and I know the brilliant man or the brilliant woman that is too smart for their own good, right? And they love to flaunt this knowledge, and you can tell that it has led them to be prideful. Like, we know that person. I, I, I'm there, okay? So let's go on to verse 2. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. Okay, I, I'm lost here now. If anyone know, thinks that he knows something, even if it's true, he does not yet know as he ought to know. Like, are you seeing how there's a dilemma here? Okay, so I'm trying to understand this. I'm a, I'm, 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 I'm a math guy. I'm a very logical person. So I'm thinking, okay, so if that's true, if I think I know something, then I don't know that I ought. Is the opposite true? That if I don't think I know something, then I actually know as I ought. That's what verse 3 should say, right? Like, in my math brain, you English people are like, no, you're wrong. 
That's not what Paul says. What does he say in verse 3? But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. This makes no sense. Like, this does not track logically. And I can imagine the people in Corinth, they're like, would you just let us eat the meat? Like, we just want to eat the meat. We know that there's one God. There is one Lord, Jesus Christ. We know that idols don't exist. We are not worshiping these false gods. We just want a ribeye, Paul. That's what they're saying. And he's saying, but if anyone knows God, he is loved by God. Like this. Okay, let's, let's try to make some sense of this, okay? So what do you do and what do I do when I don't know um, what the Bible is saying? I research John Piper and see what he says. That's what I do. So he has written... He does these little helpful video series called Look at the Book, okay? And so I created a chart straight from, I mean, I tweaked it a little bit, but this is from uh, something he did from a Look at the Book series on this text. And so I believe, the more I studied this passage, I think that Paul is talking about two different types of knowledge, and it's not true knowledge and false knowledge, okay? It's not right facts and wrong facts, it's the application of right knowledge. Okay, does that make sense? Like, it's true, but how are you applying it? So there's a right way to apply the knowledge that we have, and there is a wrong way. So as you can see here, the wrong way is to take the knowledge that we have, allow it to be founded in pride, that will lead to a lovelessness for others, and it ends in their destruction. And you think, man, destruction, that's a strong word. Paul uses that word. That's verse 11. And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, okay? So that's what happens when we take our knowledge and we use it the wrong way. So what is the right way? Well, again, going back to verse 3, which seems so confusing at first, if anyone loves God, he is first known by God. The foundation of right knowledge, the right application of knowledge is to be known by God. God. This is founded in humility. It leads to a serving love for both God and others, and it edifies. It builds up those around us. Now, this is where it ought to be worship-inducing and humbling for us, that you can know all the facts about all the things. You can be sharp Bible scholars, but you cannot possess true knowledge, which leads to a love for God and love for others unless you are known by God. Let me say it again. You cannot possess true knowledge, which leads to a love for God and love for others, unless you are known by God. So there is a knowledge that puffs up, but this true and right knowledge builds up. There is a knowledge that is founded in pride, but true and right knowledge comes from humility. There's a knowledge that destroys those around us, but true knowledge, true and right knowledge leads to love for God and others. So God has chosen you for himself, and that is why you love God and others. That is the beginning of right knowledge. So why is Paul saying these things? Like, there's a purpose here, right? Why would he go down and lead, to, like, have this progression? Why would he do that? Because verse 7. So Paul agrees with them. They know these things. They know there's only one God. They know that idols don't exist. They know that they're not worshiping these false idols when they eat this meat. What does he say in verse 7? Seven, not all know that. Not all possess that knowledge. 
but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol. And their conscience, being weak, is defiled. So their weaker brothers and sisters, those who were new to the faith and just left this idol worship, did not possess that same knowledge. So let's define our terms here. Who is this weaker brother? It is not the legalist in the corner of the room who is judging you for the way you are living out your rights, okay? So it's not that person. Like, that's, that's the jerk over here that he's going to address later, okay? It's not the unbeliever who is going in and out of the pagan temple and is actually worshiping these idols. It's not that person either. The weaker brother is someone who just left that, just left idol worship, and is saying, yeah, I'm a follower of Jesus now. And they're really confused when they see their older brothers and sisters in these pagan temples, and our text literally says, reclining at table. They are fellowshipping in these pagan temples, eating this meat. And to them, again, it's like, hey, this is no big deal. I'm not worshiping these gods. I'm just having a free ribeye. Like, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not doing that, Paul. And their weaker brother, who just left idol worship, is saying, have I got it wrong? Like, am I supposed to worship these gods still? Like, is there not really one God? That's where they're going in their mind. That is, is Jesus really the way? That is what is happening. And it was leading them to sin. And so I want to be a little fair to the people who wrote this letter to Paul. Like, meat back then wasn't as prevalent as it is now. It wasn't as easily accessible as it is for us. Like, for me... I, and I know, like, I'm super spoiled. I grew up on a farm in western Oklahoma. Many of you know this, and we raised beef. And so my trip to the store for beef is calling my dad up and being like, hey, man, you got, you got a cow in the freezer right now? Yeah, come on out. I, I get an ice chest or a black trash bag, just the largest trash bag I can get, and I'm just throwing ground beef, ribeyes, roast, whatever. Like, I'm filling it up, and we're talking 40, 50 pounds of, of beef whatever I can carry in our van, and I bring it home. That's my trip to the store, right? And I know like some of you are like, you are the worst. I'm envious of you. I, but listen, you're not far from that, right? Like all we do is drive around the corner to the closest grocery store, and we just pay a few bucks for a pound of beef, two pounds of beef. In an hour, we've got this great meal, right? We are so spoiled in this way. And I think if we were these Corinthians, and we rarely, if ever, got meat, we would be saying, man, come on, Paul. Come on now. Like, we're just going to throw that steak out. Like, we're, we're just going to throw that beef out just because somebody else thinks that was an idol. Like, we're going to get rid of that. Here's what they should have been asking. Is this something we should be doing instead of, is this something we can do? They should have been asking, does this defile my brother or my sister's conscience, not does this defile my conscience? They should have been asking, do I love my neighbor instead of do I love myself? So one commentator explains it for us like this. 
This Corinthian group's view might be summed up as a knowledge is power and power gives us freedom and rights. Paul counters with his own slogan, love builds up the church and gives opportunity and power for service to others. For Paul, freedom is not the first and fundamental cry, which is then crimped or limited by love. Rather, love is the fundamental thing, and it indicates how one's power ought to be used. This is from another commentator, Stephen Um. He says, the exercise of personal freedom is never simply personal, right? The exercise of personal freedom is never simply personal. Though people would love to believe that their actions do not affect those around them or the society as a whole, to believe this is to be naive. Culture is the result of countless individuals exercising their personal rights for good or for ill. So how do we do this? How, that is the million-dollar question, right? For us this morning who don't worship in these pagan temples and don't eat this meat, how do you and I do this? So to help us, I am going to take verse 8 I'm going to slightly reconstruct it. I'm going to interject some words that might help us resonate here. So verse 8 says, Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. Now let's see if this helps us grab hold of the text this morning. Alcohol will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not drink, no better off if we do. Playing video games will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not play and no better off if we do. Our unfiltered access to all of the internet will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not have total access, no better off if we do. Buying and having nice things will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not purchase these things and no better off if we do. The way we dress will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not dress a certain way and no better off if we do. Our social media posting will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not post, believe it or not, and no better off if we do. I cannot believe that I did not put wearing masks on here. Wearing masks will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not wear them and no better off if we do. And now to do something similar with verse uh, verse 13. I think this is where it really sticks for us. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat. Now here we go again. You ready for this? Buckle up. If alcohol makes my brother or sister stumble, I won't drink. If playing video games makes my brother or sister stumble, I won't play. If my internet access, my unfiltered internet access makes my brother or my sister stumble, then I won't have it. If what I wear makes my brother or sister stumble, then I won't wear it. If, wearing, if not wearing masks makes my brother or sister stumble, then I will wear the mask. If the things I say and do on social media make my brother or sister stumble, then I won't say them. Why? Because of verse 12. Sinning against your brothers and sisters and wounding their conscience when it's weak, you sin against Christ. Now, you may say, this is too restricting. Christianity is not about a bunch of rules 
that you tell me what to do and don't do, right? I'm getting a little animated up here. (laughs) It's so much more than that. And you're right. You are absolutely right. But you're asking the wrong questions. You're asking, can I do this or that? Is it okay for me to do this or that? When you should be asking, is this something I should do? Is this something I should say? Is this something I should wear? Is this something I should post? Let us ask these questions. Again, Stephen, um, this is more from his commentary. And this is, this is what happens when we consider what Jesus has done for us, right? Because we want to hold on to our freedoms and our rights. That's really hard here in America, right? Because we're so big on freedom. And so you're going you're gonna to try to step onto my rights and freedoms. Well, as believers, we have, to, we have to fight against that, right? We need to look to Jesus, who did not hold on to his rights and freedoms. Christians are able to enjoy freedom because someone sacrificed his freedom on their behalf. Their rights are the result of Christ laying aside his claim to any and all of his rights. Our liberties are ours because the ultimate stronger brother gave up his liberty to secure the liberties for his weaker brothers, namely us. Christ did not die to save the solitary individual. He died for his bride, his collective people, his church. Rights are never exercised in isolation because they always have a bearing on those around us. It's not a question of what one can or cannot do. It's a question of how to serve others and live a life that makes the gospel compelling. How do we know whether or not we recognize the deep implications of the cross? When we give up our rights for the sake of loving our brother. All things are ours in Christ. Therefore, all things are meant to be used in service to and worship of Christ. Only the gospel tells us that we are so free that we can give up our rights for the sake of another. Did you hear that? We are so free that I don't have to exercise my freedoms. Only the gospel tells us that. Our identity is not bound up in self-expression. It is bound up in the ultimate self-expression of a God who is characterized by self-giving love. So how did Jesus do this? Hey, thanks for asking that also. Philippians 1, starting in verse 27. Only let your manner of life, this is Paul's charge to the church in Philippi. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that you would be unified. I'm paraphrasing a little bit there. But he wants them to live a life worthy of the gospel. So again, there's a progression here. Chapter 2, verse 1. So if there's any encouragement from Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, complete my joy by again being unified. He wants them to be unified. Why? Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not look, look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. How can we do this? Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, he made himself nothing by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, 
even death on a cross. This is our king. This is our Lord. This is our example, right? If Jesus chose this way, why would we think we are exempt? This is our king. Now, I have to confess before all of you this morning, not to my wife's surprise, this is hard for me, okay? This is difficult. You know what's easy? Thinking of myself first all the time. How does this benefit me? How is this going to most further my agenda? How, how does this promote my comfort, my control, the things that I want? That, you talk about easy, that is easy. All right, what do you want for lunch? All right, we're going here. What do you, you want a nap? Yeah, I want a nap. Don't want the kids to leave me alone? Yeah, I need, I need some time to myself. I, that is easy. That is so easy. Now, if you're like me, you would probably say, if you're not, if you're not then you're a liar, right? This is easy for us. And we, we know that we're, those we're closest to, like we know what gives them joy, right? It makes them happy. We know how to promote their love and faith to and obedience to Christ, don't we? Like we know how to do that for our, our spouses, our, our kids, our roommates, close friends. But oh, by the way, we also know what they hate, right? Like we know how to get under their skin. And here's the kicker, like we know how to make it more difficult for them to know, love, and follow Jesus, don't we? Because that's what we're doing. We operate in a way that is not self-serving to others. Now, I know that in 1 Corinthians 8, Paul is speaking about a narrow group of people, right? The, the weaker brother. Again, not the legalist, not the unbeliever, but I'm gonna broaden this. Like in general, do you love and serve others? Just generally speaking, do you love and serve others? Do you live a life that makes the gospel compelling to all people? Like if we followed you around, like we had like a movie crew, let's say, and we're just following you around for a day or a week or whatever, and we just observed like the way you talked, the way you treated others, um, how you lived when life got hard, how you were when no one else was around. Would someone watch this and say, I don't know what they've got, but I want some of that. Like, I want some of that. Like, do you live a life that makes the gospel compelling? I'm not saying, are you perfect? I'm just saying, by and large, like, do you live out the gospel in this way? Now, I wanna, as we wrap up here, I want to I wanna ask us some questions to consider as we leave for us to think on today and this week. I want to ask first, where do you go to for knowledge? Like, where do you get your knowledge and, and your wisdom? The Corinthians, they, they were at least getting their knowledge from the scriptures, right? They misapplied it, but they at least got it from the scriptures. Is that where we're going? Like, is our knowledge, the things that we think on, the things that we meditate on, is that the word of God or is that something else? Has something distorted your view of what's true and good? Now, I know I show this seemingly every time that I preach, and I'm going to keep doing it because it's so relevant, okay? Okay. I'm not going to talk about it in depth. I just want to highlight from the wisdom period, uh, pyramid, again, the bottom portion of that pyramid and then the very top portion of that pyramid. And I want to think of them in contrast to one another. 
you may disagree with some of the things in the middle of this pyramid, right? But surely we would not disagree that as followers of Jesus, our primary diet of knowledge and wisdom should be the Word of God. We would not, like you can't debate that, right? Like we can't, we can't argue against that. But what is our reality? That's the question I'm asking. Like what is actually the thing that you take in the most? Is it that on the top? Not just Twitter, just social media, Facebook, Instagram, Fox News, CNN, like whatever. I'm not trying to start fights here. I'm just asking. What is the thing you take in the most? I want to leave that up just for a few moments. I'm going to ask some more questions. Actually, hold on real quick. What if, what if all of us just said, hey, I'm, I'm just going to quit social media? What if we said that? Like we, we deleted our accounts, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, we left it. And not just the sake, for the sake of leaving them, what if we instead decided to love our neighbor? Like how crazy would that be, right? In our society, that sounds crazy. That's free. I, just consider that. Like what, is, is your social media usage good for your soul? I'm not asking, is it fun? Is it something that like is enjoyable for you? I'm asking, is it good for your soul? And if it's not, what are you doing? Okay, that's it. I'm done. Next question. Are there liberties that you are unwilling to give up? Forget for a moment how someone might perceive these things, but from that list I gave earlier, I mentioned social media, alcohol, video games, internet, these things, the way we dress. Is there something that in general you're saying, you don't touch that? Like, you don't touch my social media. You don't touch my alcohol, my beer. You don't touch my internet. Has that become an idol for you? Is there someone that you need to seek forgiveness from this morning? Have you harmed a brother or sister because of a freedom that you have abused? Okay, you can pull this down. So, I don't know if this is a struggle for you or not this morning, but here is one takeaway that I would like, like all of us to engage in this week. Um, my argument from the very beginning is that true love for God and, and, being, and knowing God is founded in Him first knowing us. And so I am going to encourage and exhort all of us to meditate on and perhaps even memorize some verses that remind us of that. I'm going to have them on the screens here if you want to jot these down. From 1 John 4, 19, before you could love God, he loved you first, okay? That's good news. Romans 5, 8, he secured salvation for you through Jesus while you were his enemy. Ephesians 1, 4, he knew you and secured salvation for you before you were created. And Romans 8, 38 and 39, nothing can separate you from the love of God in Jesus. So you feel free to leave these up just for a few moments if you guys want to write them down. I would encourage you to think on, meditate on, and memorize these if you can this week. May we be known as the people of Providence Road, not for, as, as a group of people that says, you are not taking my rights for me. Like, you're not going to make me wear a mask. Or you're not going to take X, Y, or Z from me. Man, let us not have that posture. Like maybe you land on a certain side of these difficult topics that we've been dealing with for months. Maybe you do. But let us have the posture. Let us be known for 
known as a people that give up our rights for the sake of loving those around us. May we serve others and live a life that makes the gospel compelling. Let's pray. Father, again, I I just want to thank you for your word and, and thank you that it is so relevant for us. And I pray that this morning, wherever, wherever we're at in this room, that as we wrestle with, man, am I abusing a right or freedom that I have? God, I pray that you give us the strength and the courage and the desire, give us the desire to change. Give us the desire to lay everything at the foot of the cross that does not cause us to worship you supremely. God, we love you. We thank you for what you've done for us. And because of this, help us to live, help us to work, help us to talk, help us to treat others in such a way that makes the gospel compelling. We know that it stands alone by itself, that the gospel is good news and it changes hearts. But would you keep us from being stumbling blocks for the gospel to those around us? I pray for any potential weaker brothers and sisters in the room who have been harmed by others in the church. God, this morning, would you heal their brokenness? God, I pray that you would help them to see Jesus this morning for who he is and not for something they saw in a past horrible church experience, would you help us? Would you, would you mend our hearts this morning? Right, we just want to make you known. We want to make you famous in our midst. And so we need help doing that, and we're acknowledging that this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.